I'm having a good time. You are? Yeah. I can tell. We are rolling. Terrible happy talks. Terrible happy talks. Terrible happy talks. Terrible happy talks. Today's guest is Daniel Kuntz. Daniel is an international school educator, long distance runner, volleyballer, health enthusiast and dog lover. Daniel was the winner of the grueling endurance and obstacle course event Tough Mudder in Australia in 2013. He has competed in a variety of half marathon events around the world in which he he has maintained results in the top 1%. Born in Romania, Daniel was orphaned as a baby, adopted and moved to Canada where he then grew up and studied. Since meeting Daniel, I'm constantly impressed by his kind and approachable nature. He seeks the good in everyone he meets and in every situation. This approach translates into positive and enriching relationships with his students, colleagues, peers and his beloved dogs, but most of all his partner Eugene. Daniel gives of his time freely by offering his talents to support his community wherever he can and this is evident with his weekly Dan Sanity exercise classes that he has consistently offered for free to his current school community. Daniel has adopted a work hard, play hard philosophy to his life and I don't know anyone else who does it as well as him. Today he's here to share his experiences, challenges and hopes for the future. Daniel Kuntz, welcome. Thank you for having me. That was so lovely. (laughs) (laughs) How are you brother? I'm good. How are you? I'm okay. I'll tell you what though, man, like I stumbled through that intro. (laughs) That's flattering. I've got this, yeah, maybe you were making me nervous. I don't know. Yeah, I've got this thing where I'm like, I just want to do the intro in one take. And you are pretty much the first person I've ha- had to go three takes to get that out. Lucky number. I wonder why. So how's your day been? What have you been up to? Just settling into this new place, running around trying to buy furniture. Oh, how fun's that? No, it's Bye. good. I just feel like... I just have like a stamp on my forehead that says like, take advantage of me and charge me three times the price. And I was fully going to buy like such a piece of garbage, like um, table for the living room. And everyone, Harriet, especially I called her, I video called her. I was like, is this a good idea? She's like, no. <laughs> but um, so I came on out empty handed. But is that, is that part of one of the uh, many challenges of being an expat? Like, I've been lucky that I've never had to buy proper furniture What's so that? far. Just because all our houses have had everything I've needed. So I've never had to, like, do the whole run around, like, price checking and, like, quality checking. I just kind of wanted to buy it and get it over with. But yeah, they were saying it was, like, almost three times the price I should be paying. But how, how do you go with the language barrier? That the, kind in, of in stuff. Those, in I those can, situations. I can, it's, like, obvious that I'm a I'm an easy target. But I can say, I can talk numbers. I can tell them what I need in Bahasa. So it's not as challenging, but I can't ask them anything about it, you know? Mm. So is it more because you present as a, as a rich foreigner? Well, I did wear um, socks and flip flops. So I felt like maybe I was connecting with most of them on a different level, but that's why I'm not fooling anybody. Hey, maybe you should dress better in this excuse situation. me i feel like i was dressing to relate not and i was dressing for function not so, for fashion dude i'm sorry man there's only one thing worse than socks and flip-flops 
Socks and Crocs. Socks and Crocs. I know, but Jeez. unfortunately, I threw my Crocs out last week. So really? Yeah. Good. Uh, you've just gone up a step. <laughs> I really thought you were cooler than that. What's going on? They were Tevas, not Crocs. So I feel like they're a little bit more like functional outdoor, not so like Crocky. <laughs> <laughs> crocky. Ah, <laughs> uh, Crocs. Yeah, my, I remember my parents bought me some for Christmas because like they know how much I hated them. Right. Um, and they did it just to like Beg take the pit. And then yeah. they said, and then that was it. They're like, this is your only present. Like, ha ha, this is funny. Like, where's my other present? Mm-hmm. This is when I was in my early 20s. I think when Crocs first came out. And um, and they actually kept me going all all day. And it wasn't until the end of the day they went, oh, we're just joking. We did have a present. I'm like, that's just, uh, no, you know, no, don't joke about Crocs. That's mean. But I did buy these for myself as an adult. So <laughs> that's a bit of a <laughs> <laughs> different. It's <laughs> funny, man. So you just said like you've, you know, you've, you've relocated um, and you're living in a new place. So what brought that move along? Why, why, are you, why are you at where you are at right now? Mm, are we going to talk about right now or Bali in general? Oh, not, well, yeah, Bali in general. But no, we'll start with just like with the recent move. What's so the it, recent move was, this was like going to be my little landing pad for well actually exit pad rather for leaving bali because the vet when we looked at moving the dogs was like you need to have them on domestic quarantine basically like no interaction with other dogs no beach walks no like walking in the grass and if you do anything you need to check them like like vigilantly to just make sure they're not getting ticks so that was the plan so i committed to harriet like way back when in December that, yeah, I'll take this place. Now that's not so much the plan, but it still works. Like it's a good place for them. So, and it's nice to be back. Like I've always lived around here except for the last place living in Prairie on. So this is where all the expats used to just settle. And there was really like no other, like other than being in Ubud, like most people, especially at green school would settle here or in Ubud. Okay. And this whole Prairie on shift has only been within the last few years. Okay, so um, what kind of dogs are they and where were you going to take them? Mm, I've got two beautiful little French bulldogs. <laughs> okay. Um, and we're trying to move them to Australia, to Perth, but it's quite a tedious and um, hectic process, I guess. Dude, I'm going to just put it out there. This is uncomfortable, but I'm just going to say it. I've seen dogs humping, you know, things. Yeah. As you know, They hump legs. Right. You know, a chair of a... You know, the leg of a chair. Or a cushion or something. Cushion. Yeah. But, dude, i just seen your dogs having a 69er. Is that normal behavior? Absolutely normal behavior. <laughs> and they love it. <laughs> That's why I have doing? two dogs. They have they serve each other in ways that I can't and obviously won't. So, <laughs> like, they're best friends. So, That's cool. That's yeah. okay. Fair enough. Instead of them just hanging out by themselves all day, all sad and pathetic, they get to... Run around, like, chill, yeah. hump. It's the dream. <laughs> dogs have got a pretty good life, eh? Oh, these dogs, of course. Mm. Yeah. Why do you like dogs so much? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I grew up on a farm, so we always had like farm dogs, mm-hmm. but we didn't really like have that like relationship with dogs that <laughs> I currently do or that I ha- saw other people having. Um. I wouldn't even say that I'm a dog person to be perfectly honest. I just had this like really intense experience in Nice in France with a French bulldog 
that like totally just like I was obsessed from the first time I saw it. It was like in a little bakery. We were on vacation. We kind of like saw it from outside and it did this little like skimper scamper, like couldn't get its feet type of thing, like running and going nowhere and then caught its traction and then came out and just like cuddled with us and we we're like done. So we kept coming back and walking by that bakery every day and just having our little like two minute moment. They're kind of like, this probably happens 50 times a day. So like move on or whatever, but it was intense. And I was like obsessed with them ever since. And I like when you say intense, like what made it feel intense? Like, was it creating a sense of, uh, you know, giving you love and affection that you, you know, well, like I was never really like a domestic pet person. We always had animals. We had cows on our property. Like I've been surrounded by animals my whole life, but it wasn't like, love kind of you know it was just like they were there they were just like another thing there that you know we had chickens we had we had pigs in the next property and horses it was like there were always animals there and of course i liked them like people like animals but it wasn't like this extended part of the family kind of relationship that so many people have and so then i just started like following every french bulldog profile on instagram because i was just like i can't get enough and it was just like was all it, of was them it filling a hole for you i guess so <laughs> for sure it was and then so when i so i would always put like um a picture on the background of my phone as like my little vision board and the first time i started doing that was when i was getting ready for the tough mutter because i was like so focused i was like watching youtube every day of like how to do all these things so that was my first one that i did I was like, I just need to like know how to do it. And every time I was doing something, I'd like look at my phone or whatever. I was like, is this something that's helping me to achieve this? And at that point it was the Tough Mudder thing. The next thing was my Ninja, my bike. And I ended up getting it. And then even in my camera rolls, like right after I got the Ninja in a weird way, the next four pictures that I picked to be my vision board for my phone were four black Frenchies. So you were, quite obsessed with training for Tough Mudder and tough everything Tough Mudder. Then you were obsessed with a motorbike. Yes. So you were, you know, and, and then and you got it. And then the dogs. And then the dogs. But the crazy thing is like, <clears throat> I, like those dogs will look so much like these dogs. And it's not like I just went out and got the dog that I want. I got Lulu as a birthday present and then I adopted Bull because someone asked me to. So it was like okay. both of them came to me. I didn't, pursue those wow whereas like the other ones i was actively pursuing them so it wasn't like oh my gosh i'm in this tough mudder race like Mm -hmm. wow or oh my gosh i finally got a ninja that was a little bit more fluke but it was like it was just so common knowledge that i wanted it that like when the guy came up was like hey i have a ninja but my son's too young can you just rent it i was like yes i will do that for super cheap and way you know way cheaper than normal and like this is a friend you know it was like yes that's amazing so like with these guys it was like the same ease almost as this happened so quickly and and they're exactly what I would want in dogs. They're so weird and they're so, they have so much character. Like I've noticed a lot of attitude, like they sleep on the bed with me every night and like, it's amazing. I just love them. They're just, they're the best. Just companionship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dogs are good like that. You were talking about other animals and you said you grew up on a farm. So where was that? We, in a rural area? Like, we Canada? grew up in the middle of Canada, a place called Saskatchewan, and in a small town, like, away from anyone, any, away from anywhere anyone would actually recognize. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then we were like the one family that grew up on a farm, like farm in quotations because it wasn't a farm. We, we were the only family that grew up on an acreage okay. because my parents were accountants in a town of farmers. Okay. So most non farming families just lived in the town. That's just how that kind of community worked. But sure. we, for some reason, just lived on a farm and didn't farm. Yeah, so, so we had all that, but it was like, other than the chickens, none of it was ours. We would just rent out the land to other farmers. So we had cows and we had all that, but they were just there. So the main industry in that area was farming? Agriculture. Oh, and Agriculture like, and farming? Yeah. Okay. Cows and pigs and yeah. all that. Small town? Sheep. Yeah, like 1,500, I think, when I was there, when I graduated. But almost, I would say half of that, if not more, was out of the town. Out of the town. So okay. it's like it was quite like quite a big radius, I guess, of of people for that one kind of it's center spread over yeah. a large area. Mm-hmm. Did you um did you uh, have quite like do you have good memories of that time in your life, like growing up in like a nice rural area, surrounded by farms, or was it was it difficult? I don't know how to answer that because like Why? no one it's not like a crowd pleaser when when you're like oh i'm from saskatchewan no one's like wow Dude, like I'm if impressed. someone like if someone says oh, i'm from toronto or vancouver or whistler or just somewhere where like it's internationally known or even like nationally hmm. known like we don't we just have a reputation for being kind of like flat and boring and agricultural like we've got beautiful lakes and rivers and forests in the north but it's so hard to live there just logistically because it's so isolated and the flies are so bad and it's cold so it's like no it's just so hard it's not easy like living in australia like you can live in the same conditions in australia so much easier just because it's not minus 50 every year and it's not as i like it is isolated but it's like the isolation with the weather and the extreme kind of weather weather patterns makes it like no one's just going to choose to stay there Mm. but um like I don't know if I just was delusional to like the, my reality and maybe that's just a normal thing. You just don't really know, know what reality is when you're young. Cause that just, it is just what it is. Like yeah. you don't really like, we didn't, we traveled a lot, but we didn't travel, I guess enough for me to be like going into this existential crisis or like, you know, looking inwards of like, who am I and how am I connected to where I am? Like any of that, like, and maybe that was trumped by the fact that I was adopted and all of that energy went to like, acknowledging Romania and not like acknowledging like the weird part of the world that we actually grew up in. Cause like <laughs> teaching in the outback and like seeing rural places around the world and like the way people live there and we'll, kind of even more so the way people view those places. I'm like, Oh my gosh. Like it's not necessarily always bad, but it's always quite like there's usually like one strong opinion and it's just usually not the most positive, but mm-hmm. I, I had a great upbringing. Like, as a teacher now, I'm like, oh, it was way different than what why, why our you, students why are. You, why do you consider it great? Um, we were just super busy all the time. Like we, we did Ukrainian dancing, which I didn't realize wasn't normal until like co- not even college. Like not like we didn't do it in college, but like it was such a, com- um, a Ukrainian community in that part of Canada that it was like, even though what didn't happen, it was like normal. So that's what prompted your parents to um adopt you that it was a ukrainian community yeah no my 
well, there were a lot of factors that went into that one. So like my dad is Romanian, like his mom was Romanian okay. and they were on the Canadian, like a domestic adoption waiting list for seven years. And then when the borders opened in Romania for adoption, they were just like, nah, we're going. Okay. So they just decided to like quit that process. Cause they're just taking forever. And like they were 42 and they got together when they were 19. Right. So like, they had a good life. They had money. They, they, there was no reason why they shouldn't have had a child gotcha. as far as adoption is concerned. So they were just like, no, we need to go. So, yeah, it had nothing to do with the fact that that part of Canada is Ukrainian, but it, it didn't hurt, that's for sure. It felt like, you know, we were like neighbors. Yeah, wow. It's um, it's just such a, like when I hear stories of... um you know, people adopting and wanting to adopt. Um, it just fills me with like a real sense of um, joy, I guess, that there's um, people out there who really want to um, support life and, and, and give the of themselves. Now that I'm a parent myself and I, I see and understand how much goes into raising a child, um, it's really um, challenging, you know. And um, but then to have to be put through a process to, like, which is from what I understand quite intensive. Super um, intensive. Yeah, like it's it's such a selfless thing. It's maybe one of the most selfless things that someone can do, in my opinion. For right sure, now. and it's I feel like it's hard to adoption. Such a funny thing. Like, is it just like the product of like this is like your plan F or something? Like you've just gone through so many other options. Like I know some people are like, yes, I want to adopt. But I don't think that's like most couples like intention, I guess, straight couples for sure. Like, uh, I don't feel like that's necessarily your first option if you can have kids in a different way, whether that's IVF or even surrogate or whatever. Like, I I think very few people will be like, yeah, let's just adopt. And it takes a special kind of person to do that. And my parents are amazing, but yeah. they unfortunately had to go through like a lot of plans, not working out to get to that point where gotcha. they're like, we need, like, we want to do this together. We, and this is the only way that we're going to do it is if we adopt. So, gotcha. and then on top of that to go international like that. Mm. So, yeah. So how old were you when, when you were adopted? We were adopted when we were 18 months. My twin, when you say we, okay. my twin and I, twin. so, um, we were actually like followed by our news, I guess, um, station, oh, CBC, um, Canadian Broadcasting Center. Um, okay. But they, so they followed my parents and my dad's sister. She went as well. So there's like 10 families, I think, that went on that first wave to Romania. And they, yeah, they were just basically followed to see like what they had to go through. So they went and they had to stay there for months to try figure out like all the logistics around getting babies back. Mm. And, um, and they worked with a social worker from British Columbia and she basically helped everyone kind of find their, their match. So I guess they were like matched with us and yeah, everyone went home with kids. <laughs> and so you had a, a broadcasting company following their journey so did they, 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 did followed they continue to follow your journey? Yeah. So I they, have. they picked like my mom and, um, a lady called Sheila Coles. Uh, they hit it off 
back when the story kind of initially aired. And then so she came back and checked in on us a few times. And my mom was on that show a few times more. And like, just to like see like, where are they now type of thing? Because it was such big news internationally when Ceausescu was overthrown. Like just because Romania was like not a good place at the, okay. in the end of the 80s. And um, so like the world was kind of watching, especially in Europe. And that trickled back. The way it trickled back over to Canada was like so many Canadian families were going to Romania to get kids. Uh, and so they, yeah, they followed us. And If you don't mind me asking, mm-hmm. and if I've crossed the, crossed the line, just say, but are you able to maybe, do you have any knowledge or understanding of why you were put up for adoption? Yeah. Uh, just like poverty. My okay. mom was not. Not in a position to financially support any kids. So we have an older sister as well. Mm-hmm. So she was 10 years older. She was already kind of in like the boarding program because she had kind of graduated. She outgrown the, the orphanage. So um, so she was put up for adoption first. So she couldn't even take care of Patrika 10 years before that. And then so 10 years later, she had both of us. And it was, you know, same same situation. And we were fortunate enough fortunate enough to go back and visit her. Um, and see like all of our biological family, which is awesome. That's not kind of the experience that a lot of orphans go through because it is hard for parents to kind of release and let their kids kind of be so aware of like what actually happened. And it definitely, I don't know, it's worked out very well for our family, but it's not not the case for everybody. It's like it's hard for some kids to know that they were left or abandoned essentially and kids process that, that differently. Um, but for us, it was pretty healthy. I don't know if it's because we had that like older sibling or like that older presence to kind of like, I don't know, mediate, mitigate any sort of like negative. I don't, I don't know. Like looking back, it's not like we were counseled or anything like that. We just had what felt like a really normal life and it was very common knowledge and it would have been impossible for it not to be if Patrika, unless Patrika would have been like told specifically, like you can't speak Romanian, you can't talk about our past. Cause she was 12 when she came over. So like we were babies, so they could have easily D- just to clarify. Patrika is your eldest sister, older sister, okay. biological sister, biological sister. Yeah. Okay. So, um, once you realize that you were adopted in your early childhood, like, did you have a, a burning desire to, to find your biological mother straight away or how did you feel? No, because that never really happened. Like, that was kind of like the running joke with everyone that we grew up with is like, like our birthdays, we'd get a cake that says surprise or adopted. It's like, but it's like, we, I don't what? ever remember no, not knowing that, mm. you know, it's like we had pictures of the, ado- like of that time, like of us with our mom and our auntie and our like Canadian parents up in the house like my dad's mom is Romanian so that culture was a part of our family we went back when we were seven like I don't remember a time where I didn't I wasn't fully and totally aware of the fact that I was adopted and I was from somewhere else and these weren't my like biological parents like I never had that moment where there are a lot of cases where orphans do have that phase where like Mm. they're told later in life of like what the scenario is we very strangely like look a lot like our parents and like my mom and my sisters, like they graduated from the same high school in the same small town. And it's like Amazing. her, my mom's graduation picture from high school is like 
so scary of how similar it looks to my sister. It's a, it's a joke. And so like, Isn't that crazy? Like, we're lo- like we're lucky. We're both white. We're all like white essentially. So it's not like, you know, you don't get like this scenario where it's like, I'm black. I don't know. I'm adopted and I have white parents. Like that's a much more of a complex than, than other orphans go through. Whereas like for us, like no one ever would question, no one ever thought that we were adopted because we just looked like a very, very normal family. So it wasn't shocking to anyone to hear that, but no one would even probe that. So like there was never a time in my life where I didn't know that. And so I guess with that, like, I was excited to go to back to Romania when we were seven, but I think that longing to like know who my family was or know who my mom was maybe would have came later in life. But like, since we had already went back and seen her in such full, like transparency, it was like, there was no, I don't know. Like to me, I never had that. It was really cool to go back and see her and it was super emotional. And like, it was kind of strange to like, I just felt like it's like, I'm, even though I'm young, like I know that this is my mom. Okay. And like, I guess in my mind, I'm like, I don't really know what that means. Like I know biologically, like like she gave birth to me, but you know, I still didn't really even understand that whole process. Maybe when I was seven, but it was like, you're going to be approached by this like elderly looking woman that you don't really know who's going to be hyper emotional and like physical towards you. Like just kissing, not like, like no front teeth. Like, yeah. Like, She's intense. It was like, it was a really intense moment, but it's like, I just have to, I just know that this so needs would, to happen. Okay. And, but yeah, it was very interesting. Cause it was like, I felt like I just had to like, I trusted it. Obviously I knew it, but it was like, you know, this could be anybody, but like I knew that it was. Do you think that maybe the, the gravity of, of that moment, that situation probably didn't really click with you till later on? Oh, 100%. Like, 100%. Even in your adulthood? Like, we went back when we were 17. So, 10 years after that, we went back when we graduated high school just with my sister and her husband. Similar kind of experience, obviously, with like a little bit more maturity attached to it, but still, like, you know, we're connecting, reconnecting with this woman who we don't, I don't really know. She doesn't speak any English. So, my, my sister is like fluent, but not. Like she, she can speak Romanian when we're there. It's like, and she would struggle, I think in Canada, if she had to say anything, but when we got there and we're in the, in the environment, she could help us out. But it was like, our mom didn't talk that much period. And if she did, it was like weird Romanian. And it wasn't like necessarily conversational. Like we couldn't really just be like, how's the last 10 years been? You know what I mean? Like it wasn't like, it's not like getting to know a new friend. It was just a very weird social experience in a very, very short amount of time. Okay. And, um, I don't think I really processed a lot of it until I actually moved to Australia. Like I did this thing called what just like a soapbox. Okay. So the reason, the reason I, I say that is because I, when I was in college in Canada, it was like, I guess I think people knew about it, but I never like really talked about it or I never really, like it wasn't about, something about, about being adopted background. or about, yeah. and it's like, some people knew, some people didn't know. But then when I moved to Australia and being a part of such an international community, all of a sudden that story was like, everyone wanted to know it. And it's like, how and then it, how did it get out? So like, of course, everyone's like, where are you from? And I'm like, Oh, where am I from? It's like in Can- going to school in Canada. Where am I from? I wouldn't say I'm from Romania. They'd be like, get lost. Like you're it's, it's a that farmer. A kid. 
that I'm from Romania. Yeah. Ba- no, not really. No, like I no, like in Canada, no. you would you would always kind of acknowledge like what are you or whatever. You'd say, oh, I'm Norwegian German, but like when you're saying it in the way that you say it, it's like obvious that you know you're first, second, third generation Canadian or something. Like you're Canadian, but you're just acknowledging. So that was very common, like in Canada. So you would say that, but being in Australia as a Canadian, I wouldn't say I'm Norwegian German because okay. my mom's Norwegian, my dad's German. I would never say that, even though that's what I would say in Canada. Mm-hmm. So I'd say, oh, I'm Romanian. And then like, of course, well, like I'd say I'm Canadian, but I'm not really Canadian as gotcha. well. Like there's like this like little like did you feel different like, part to it. Did you struggle with your sense of identity then? I didn't struggle, but I think that I like, I got to talk about it so much more than I ever had the opportunity before, like being in, in college, like because I grew up and graduated in the same place. Gotcha. It was like, there was no point. There was not, that there was no point, but there was like, everyone knew. So it wasn't like we weren't getting this new opportunity for me to like gotcha. reshare my story. So it's not like, whereas in Australia, it was like everyone I talked to that was new. It was like, that was one of the first questions that you asked. It's like, Hey, where are you? Like, where are you from? Where did you, how did you get here? <laughs> like, like that kind of story where it's yeah. like, okay, do I go back to Canada or do I go back all the way to Romania? And of course, like, it's a cool story. So I found myself telling it a lot. And then I think being in being older and then kind of just like realizing like the sacrifice of my parents made to get us. And also like how hard it would be for them in a relationship just with the two of them to go so long without having kids. If that's like, obviously they wanted kids, like that's what happened, but it's like to not be able to have kids. Like they probably would have had kids when they were 20 if they could have. Yeah. And they got us when they were 42. Gotcha. So just to acknowledge like, wow, like I'm surprised my parents still love each other or are even still together. Or, you know, like we had a lot of issues coming over with like health complications and stuff. And it's like, I can't believe that they just like are still amazing, you know, like, yeah. and still like, like feel like they made the right decision or whatever. Like not that we did anything to like challenge that, but it's like, it's just such a big risk for them to take. And then to take it so much later in life, I acknowledge that a lot more so when you, I was like 22 rather okay. than like talking about it when I was like in my teens or even in college in Canada. So that that's what came out of it for you a lot was the admiration you had for sure. Yeah. And like this, the soapbox thing that we did at college is like, the prompt was just like, you have like five minutes to like talk about whatever you want. And like, I, I was so introverted when I was younger. I was very, very quiet. I think that was kind of like a twin thing. Like it was just, we were trying to share the same, you know, share roles basically. Cause it was like, we were just so similar in a sense. Like we were always together. You know, it's like, how are we going to be different? Phil was louder. So I was more quiet. So it was like, Growing up until we started kind of developing our own identities, I was so just just quiet and to myself. And then even, I know. I don't believe it. (laughs) And then in Australia, it was like, I was kind of more my outgoing self, but I was kind of coming into myself a lot more in in Wollongong. Best place place on earth. God's country. Um, (laughs) um, So... I remember like prepping this and it was like all like out of body kind of I was like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, I don't want to talk in front of people. Like, I don't even know why I'm saying this was like a tribute to like my parents, like loving me, even though I'm like failed them as a gay son and like, I'm not going to give them grad kids. But I like 
spoke all about that in front of like probably a hundred plus people and like sexuality just about like uh, the adoption and then the fear of like being not rejected but like the fear of letting them down that like oh great we just like invested all this in this orphan and now he's gay not going to give us kids and like what a failure this was Ah, because that was like did you carry all the things that I was carry, thinking about? Did you carry those thoughts? Oh, 1000%. Did your parents make you feel that way though? No, your mind can just do wonderful things too. No, a, absolutely not. Like looking back, like there were a lot of things where it was like self-created in your mind. For sure. There were a lot of like little things where I'm like, Hmm, they're going to hate me now. Like all the, those kind of weird things. And I started playing with them a lot more right before I came out to them. But that was like, I did that before I moved to Australia. Cause I was like, I don't want to like come out to them and be like, see ya, like catch you on the other side of the world in like so six months. Let's just go back a step. So just going back to the soapbox thing, yeah. which I'm interested in, you were required to talk about anything you like so or a theme. Was there a, like, it wasn't, it wasn't like a mandatory was a thing. It was it? just like a, opportunity and i was like i'm just gotta to do, do it in for, front of what audience it was the in our residence so it was like we were at i house so, so it was, it was like a very a, like a team eclectic. building um yeah it was just kind of like an activity not like a ted talk no not like a ted talk but it was much more informal than that and like some people did like spoken words some people did okay comedy some people didn't you know just cool stories like and then i was like i feel like i need to do this and and i i was so nervous and i like called our like i don't even remember what we called them mentors or ra i called them off the stage at the end because i'm like i just want to say mine because i just waited and waited and waited it was like hours that because people just kept talking and it was like so awesome to hear everybody's stories and i was like okay i gotta do this and i like just went up and spoke and it was basically like the adoption story and then like the whole my whole coming out story and then just like kind of wow i can't believe like my parents are so amazing still because i was like still i'm still grateful for what they did even if they would resent me or disown me because it's like i'm still in a much better situation than i would have been but were you feeling guilt around your coming out 100 percent because why i grew up in such a rural conservative area that like i think so much so that like probably subconsciously not probably 100 percent subconsciously i just did not realize what was going on. It's like, Oh wow. I have these feelings, but it's like, can't be me being gay. Cause I didn't know what gay was. Like, I didn't know what that meant. I just knew that I was like super cliche. I knew that I was different and I felt things differently, blah. And, but it's like, I'm growing up in rural Canada. It's not like I was at Mardi Gras every weekend. Like there was, there was no, there was no one around for me to even like, like a lack of diversity. In right. There's no diversity. So it's like, probably to my benefit because it's like, it's not like I was like crying at night or like I, I had no experiences until I went to college and until the very end of college where I was even like challenged where I'm like, wow, like uh, this might actually be me. Okay. Like, so you were questioning it up until you went to college. You had not even questioning it. Just being like, like in hindsight, questioning when I say questioning, questioning your sexuality or maybe, um, had trepidation around the um coming out aspect of it so i guess this will be best explained by when i first kissed a guy i was like oh fuck okay and because he had facial hair he was wearing a cowboy hat duh 
because of the country music festival. I was like, this is not what I expected. Okay. It was also my ex-girlfriend's prior like ex-boyfriend. So I was like, she had some sort of like spell on the gays and in the, in the prairies. And so like the only reason I met this guy is because of my first girlfriend who I thought, wow, she's it. Like finally I met someone that I love. And like, and then when that didn't work out, I was like talking to her ex-boyfriend because like I was friends with all of like, it was such a small little group of friends from like this one town. It's like five hours from where I lived, but I just kind of, inserted myself into that group of friends because of being close with her and close with her family. And, and so he was just telling me his whole story. I was like, Oh boy, like I can't pretend like your, these experiences aren't mine. You identified with his story. I identified so much with his story. And and this is in Canada, Canada. near your hometown. Yeah. But prior to that, prior to that girlfriend, you were where you were living. You were feel, were you feeling very isolated in those thoughts and feelings? I didn't have them like, cause didn't, I just didn't, didn't them. I, I had them, but like in such a superficial way, but it wasn't like, it didn't make sense until I was literally kissing. I was like, okay. fuck, that's what all uh, of that was. So okay. it's like, I think it actually served me because that's not the reality for a lot of like LGBT growing up in like really like conservative or isolated areas where it's like, if they know that about themselves and know that they're being discriminated or know that like they're never going to find someone, blah, 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 blah. Like they can, that can feel so much worse. Whereas like I wasn't aware of it. I was totally delusional. It's not like I was surrounded by gays. Like I didn't have anything in my life that was like promoting that kind of like, you know, self-loathing or self-questioning or any of that because it just wasn't there. And I think, in hindsight now I can see like all these things that I probably, that I did that like just was deflection. And I, and I see this in a lot of my gay friends, especially ones that come from these areas is like, the only thing I want to do is just to deflect. And the way I did that was like, I'm going to volunteer and do all these different things. I'm going to run. I'm going to be the best clarinet player. I'm going to be the best piano player. So it was like, all I was doing was just, I was just busy. Would you regard yourself as a perfectionist? Definitely not a perfectionist, but I was just like obsessed with like, well, I just wanted to win. So I was just competitive (laughs) and, and like, but competitive in a lot of different ways. Like competitive at school. I wanted to be like the highest grades. Okay. And there was a little core of us that like, it was, you know, we were always, it was one of us. And so that felt good to be like one of the smartest. I've I've noticed you have a very strong work ethic. Thank you. And um, I am curious as to how that work ethic was born, but it sounds like it, it was innate. It feels like it's shaped so much of who I am. I'm like, wow, that's weird. Like, because mm. I feel like it's a, a defense, like a subconscious defense mechanism for like, no one can come at me for being like a fag. Gotcha. If I'm winning, winning all these races. awards and I'm one of the top students, I got like a national award um, in high school for like volunteer service and just like humanitarian kind of stuff. And I was like, that felt great. And it's like, I was just getting rewarded in so many other ways in my life and, and not athletically. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Like I was able to go to provincials and nationals and do all that stuff that like people praise me for. It's just like the only thing I wasn't acknowledged or praised for was like relationships with anyone. And that was fine for me. That was totally fine for me. I was like, okay, if this, 
but this was all subconscious. I wasn't like, wow, no girl wants to fuck me. I'm going to be really good at piano or I'm going to be really smart. It was just like my mind just went straight into like focusing on all these other things away from my like love life or my sex life that I just enjoyed doing that instead. And it served me so well because it got me to. It wasn't at the forefront of your thinking. Literally not until I kissed that guy. And you were in high school? Oh, no, Pac. I was in fourth year going into my like going into my third year of college see i find it really interesting because you know having been a teenager myself i know how strong those hormones are in terms of you know those new feelings you get right right um and it kind of sounds like you're saying you you didn't really have strong feelings in that direction in that way i created strong feelings for girls because you thought you had because i thought i had to and obviously like I made friends with girls very easily. So it would just be like, Oh, next time maybe. And then like I hit a series, like a flow where like I hooked up with a few girls, but hooking up was like literally kissing while we're all wasted at a party outside in like the forest somewhere. Like it was just, did you enjoy it? No. Well, like whatever. It was like weird. And then I have the whole layer of Christian guilt. Like a lot of what I did was with the church. Like I family's Christian. we, We call ourselves shadow Catholics, but we're Christian. Okay. So, um, just like, yes, but no, it's more of a community thing. Like my mom ran the choir. I played piano for the choir and the church each Sunday. Like we, we were very involved, but it was more like, it was just a lovely group of basically old people where I grew up and they were awesome. Like I don't, there's a lot of nastiness with religion, but like, I didn't have that experience at all. Like for me, it was just like hanging out with really, really lovely older people. And like, it was fun to work with them and like it's like especially to to combine that with music and like they appreciate it and like they didn't have anybody like i was the one that played piano every sunday for them and it's just like having all like the so 80 you, you play year piano old. as well yeah damn you're multi-talented yeah i'm jealous don't be jealous because like yeah i'm just listening to what you're saying and i'm i'm really curious because um like going back to that whole sense of identity thing, I kind of identify with you in terms of like I grew up in a really like Anglo-Saxon area, sure. Like and what we might call white Australian. Yeah, it was coastal, semi-coastal town, sort of fifteen twenty minutes from the beach, um, and small a small town at the time. It's grown a lot since. Um, and my father was born in Malta. Right. Okay, and when I started going to school, like I got a lot of his, a lot of his genes, like dark hair, dark sort of darker skin, yeah. um, you know, now now baldness, you know, <laughs> but my mom, she's like your stereotypical white Australian, you know, um, right, and you know, I when I started school, I started getting called what we what we uh, a wog, yeah. a wog, which oh, is yes. like someone from ethnic background right and i just didn't understand it i was like what do you mean i was born here my right. dad was born here my mum was born here um and i, I and because my surname was what would be regarded in australia as ethnic because it wasn't smith yeah or <laughs> johnson or whatever know. yeah and um <laughs> and i used to always like just i just couldn't get it and then um like as i've become older i've become a lot like it's sort of drifted off and i think Australia has become a lot more diverse and accepting right. than, than it was 
say 30 years ago that's for sure but then I noticed when I started traveling in my early 20s you know I'd be traveling around the world and people would start to like you start to have these conversations oh so where are you from and like I'm Australian oh but no what, what's your what's your where background you know? yeah. and I'm completely disconnected from that yeah that cultural side of my upbringing and um, I, I did I struggled with it I'm like well I'm Australian like why you know why, why is this so hard being, to understand why am I being excluded or, or right. actually identified and, and given a, a title you know right and I found that very hard and I think when you travel and move around um, it does stir it up a bit so even for me moving to Bali um, I was having a really good conversation with a girl at the Kukul farm who has the same surname as me she runs the Kukul farm and um, she, straight away oh which part of Malta are you from and oh you're Malta because you know, right. she heard my name she's like oh I've, right. I've wanted to talk to you and I'm like well, well I'm really sorry like I went to Malta and the one thing I learned from going to Malta was how Australian I was right <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah I just thought I'd share that but no yeah. it's very it's very real it's like, interesting isn't it so you went to um, you went to high school in Saskatchewan yep. Canada and then you went to university in the same area in Alberta, the next province over, but essentially. Okay. And then you had a girlfriend in college who also you broke up with. Then she had another boyfriend who you then hooked up with, which I find really interesting because. There was five of us, Pac. Excuse she, me? Like all up, there was like, she introduced me to like the first four other gay people that I knew were gay. Right. And okay. like very weird situation but like also it's it definitely like expedited wow the whole process how would you analyze that if she's had five ex-boyfriends who were all homosexual you know what like i gotta give her props because like for us it's like when you don't know what's going on like that like to meet someone and connect with them and then have them like also want to be physical and romantic with you you're like this is it. This is great. Like, this is kind of what people talk about. This is that feeling that for so long, like you can't identify with like, and I remember like now in hindsight, just, I remember like not identifying to like song lyrics or like gendered song lyrics, you know? And I think, and like not identifying with pop culture, any sort of like rom com type of thing, like just not really being able to like, like look at that and be like, I can see myself in either of those cases, you know? And so when that happens, it kind of like, you're like, wow, maybe that is me. And like, I've just been like wrong all along or whatever. And it, cause like, I don't know that many, like exclusively gay guys that, you know, had a really great run with women and they were fully satisfied. And then they kind of saw the light and came out in a different context. Like it's usually like a very weird and tumultuous kind of experience or time for like a little a young gay. But yeah. so I like, I feel bad for her, but I also like, she was kind of able to say, Hey, like, like more on the pansexual kind of side of things where I pansexual, but like, I guess that's the wrong term, but she just like, got along with us and then was like, that's what she loved. Even though it was so obvious that like all of us were gay, mm -hmm. but when we were younger, it was so hard to navigate that. Yeah. And whereas a lot of girls would just be like, 
I'm, I'm getting along with you really well. We're laughing. It's we're vibing, but I'm not going to sleep with you and I'm not going to call you my boyfriend. Do, do you think she gave you the confidence to come out? Was that part of maybe the process? Um, she definitely gave me confidence in some ways. There's like, it was just nice to have that affirmation that like, yes, like someone is able to connect with me on that level, which is something that I hadn't had. And almost everyone else that I knew had had like in like magnitude, you know, like way more than like, you know what I was getting, but she didn't really like, I don't know. She wasn't the catalyst to me coming out, but she was the catalyst to like bring that person to me to like, that was the first time I had connected with someone and just like felt like, okay, no, this has to be me. And, but it took a long time after that to, to come to terms properly with that because that was the time of my life when I did highway construction, <laughs> which was a blessing in disguise Why? because like when you say highway construction, what are we talking about? Exactly. Like driving heavy machinery, driving heavy machinery. So it was like my job was on one of the machines and it was like, you know, wake up at three or four, you're on the machine at six, you're off the machine Why? at six, seven, eight PM. And it's just you. So it's like a lot of time to think and more than, you know, any normal person would really be given in any type of, you know, regular Western kind of working, working condition or whatever. And so to have that happen in that summer when I was doing that, I went from like, I just went from every extreme. I went from like, Oh my gosh, I can't like, this is so exciting. Like I'm really like happy to like, like, I feel like I need to, I would rather I just cut my losses. Like maybe like, it feels so weird to say this now, but like, I just had no idea what was going on. I was like, it would probably be easier just to kill myself and then not have to like tell my parents that I'm gay so that at least they can be sad that they lost me in the way they knew me. Then like, like come to terms with having a gay son because that's just how like, I don't know. That's just how it went, I guess in like those kind of like small communities where like you it just wasn't a thing. you know, you just, nobody was gay or at least you didn't know about it. So I was like, I was just so scared to disappoint them. And I, I felt like, wow, they put all this effort into me. Even like emotionally, financially, like everything, they put all of this, all this into me. And like, what's the deliverable? Like a fago son. Like that to me felt so hard to like. But where, where was that idea created? Do you think it was created by societal norms? Absolutely. Because it was because not. That was, so from what I gather, it was the opposite. They accepted accepted it with their right arms. for sure and like that is this the case for some for some young people like i have friends that you know their families have kind of ostracized them a little bit not a little bit a lot and like the the relationships are, are weird are much different now it's like they feel like they can't connect with their child in the way that they used to it's not like i spent many nights like researching these horror stories and be like this is gonna be me this was just like this feeling that I had that was just like just from me and that's it. Like, and again, like similar to like, just like, you know, not having this complex when I was in high school, I feel like that was to my benefit because I didn't actually know how bad or how good 
it was out there in the real world. Like I knew nothing. I knew nothing like Stonewall 50 years or whatever this year. Like I knew nothing about LGBT anything. This is all just me creating weirdness from like my own weird upbringing there. And weird or just, I guess it's maybe a little bit cut off. Yeah. Disconnected maybe from, Mm. and like legitimately disconnected. Like we had dial up. We had like my, ability to connect with people that are like-minded or that were just gay was almost impossible. Gotcha. You know, like I, like I really couldn't unless I was like using the internet at school to like, I don't know, like it was just hard enough as it was. It wasn't something that was just accessible to me. Like maybe the experience that like younger people have today. Yeah. It's interesting. Like where you grow, where you're, you know, where you grow up and where you're brought up, you do through your childhood and your teens, you think that's the whole world. For sure. And you have this idea that, well, that's how the whole world is. And right. that's where I grow, grew up. And it wasn't until years later that I had a few realizations about the hometown I grew up in, you know. Um, it wasn't until years later that I realized and reflect upon it that it was um, race, very racist, um, not just towards people who maybe had an ethnic background, but also to the indigenous culture in the area. Yeah. And I, but at the time, I, I was just born into it. It was like, um, it was just told that, you know, the local Aboriginal people are bad. They, all they do is drink. Same, same There was no education around the big picture and, and, and why there was some, some problems with them in, in the community. Definitely. Um, and, then, and then I also realised when I left that the town I grew up in was really violent. Um, and, and I just thought that was normal and really violent. Right. And there was a huge drug and alcohol problem. But I just, because you'd see it day in, day out, you thought, well, that's how it is. It wasn't until I left that I, uh, I realized that it wasn't like that everywhere you go. And, um, and that's why I think, you know, um, seeing the world and doing some traveling to some degree is so important in terms of building, um, people who are inclusive and accepting um and um and open more open-minded because it causes a lot of fear causes a lot of pain to a lot of people i think and like delusion i feel delusion and it not that it justifies it but like when i came up to my parents my dad was fine he's like yeah i still love you like verbatim then he walked out he's like i'm busy so i'm like gonna go (laughs) <laughs> like he had his office in our house. So he was like, came out of his office, told him, he's like, all right, like, cool. Love you. I'm going to go back and work. I'm like, all right. I expected a fight. Like my mom cried, but she was just like, I'm just scared that you're going to have a shitty life. Gotcha. That's what she said. I was like, it's not so, not so bad out there. But, um, it's just cause they didn't know, you know, like for, is it, for is, them, it, is it bad out there? It is bad out there. Not bad out there for me. Okay. Because I'm lucky. But why, why are you think, lucky? Like, I don't think we live in a world that's like still like totally inclusive. And like, I know a lot of people that have had really shitty situations, but I've just haven't really. <laughs> the only time I've ever been in a really non-desirable situation just because of me being gay was in Wollongong. And it wasn't even that bad. It was just like these guys like honking like we were just walking, me and my friend were walking home from a bar and we were holding hands and these car guys were just like honking and they all had their heads out the window and screaming. It's like, 
I'll take it. If that's like the worst thing that's happened to me, like it's not, so it's you, not you, so bad. You haven't I've, dealt I've with much adversity. Not, not, I think just strictly due to the fact that I'm gay, but also I, I left right when I graduated. I started, um, so the summer after I kind of came out, I started a LGBT group at my college, which was like a Lutheran college. So, so yeah, that what was, was the name of the university you studied at in Canada. So I went to University of Alberta, but because of all of my high school achievements, I got this like weird scholarship that was like, I got a good scholarship to the U of A, but then I, they're like, Hey, if you want to go to Augustana campus, we'll give you a thousand extra dollars or something. I was like, please give that to me. So I didn't even look it up. I was like, you know, pamphlet that they had at my school I'm like looks great fine let's do it one year can't hurt anybody it was awesome but it was like in a essentially retirement community about an hour and a bit south of Edmonton so it was like definitely not like the normal college vibe we had a blast like it was a great group of kids but we were all super like-minded it was like a bunch of farm kids okay. at this college but it used to be a Lutheran college so it wasn't like totally conservative, closed minded. Like we still had chapel time, like scheduled into our classes. Like you didn't have to go, but like there was no classes so that you could go to church in between classes. So like that vibe was still very much there, but our faculty was great. Like super colorful faculty. Like everyone was awesome. So it wasn't like, we just didn't have an LGBT group or any sort of like support. And because I was an RA, um, and after I came out, it was just my room became just, this like, sorry, can you just clarify what an RA is? A resident assistant. So in the dorms, I was like in charge of like me and a, another RA were in charge of like 38 guys on our floor or something. And I had like a literal open door policy. So my door was like always propped open and I had like a really like fancy, nice room with a huge couch. And like everyone knew they could just come in and then sit down and just vent and do whatever. And college was not hard for me. So I feel like I had a lot of time to like give to people and like, especially for the younger ones who are like first time out by themselves. Like I was just getting all the, just the coolest, weirdest heartfelt, most intense conversations from you these people. I, I loved it. And like what did but, you like about it specifically? Well, vulnerability is like my favorite thing in the world. So, <laughs> um, well, I feel like I become vulnerable to people really quickly and then it's like you either love it or you don't. And that we don't have to waste any time, you know, like some people have trouble being vulnerable for sure. And that's fine too, but I don't. And right. I think I have a huge, like you can come and talk to me. No problem. Kind of like, <laughs> like lights or whatever, like the marquee above my head. But here's a question for you. Would you regard your vulnerability as a strength? Yes. Well, it served me so far. In, so, terms, yes. of, in terms of connecting with other people, connecting with other people, being able to, help and support other people like does that bring you a sense of satisfaction oh yes Pac. happiness yeah oh, for sure i love that you just call me Pac. <laughs> <laughs> you can just call me shannon <laughs> for those of you that don't know Pac means it's bahasa indonesian for like sir it's like term of endearment and respect for older oh, people because you're you. so much older than i dude, dude don't, <laughs> talk, don't talk to me like that little fella anyway my room became this open door policy and I was getting all these people basically coming out to me. And I was like, bah. Okay. And so I was like, I had one guy that was two guys that were openly gay. So I'll tell you, if I, if I felt the need to come out, I would come, come out to chat you. with me. Look, I have a, 
open door and a <laughs> fridgey. But they, we ended up, it just became that. I had like had people in my room coming out to me, coming out about like, you know, maybe I don't know what it is. I don't know what's going on. And I was like, okay, we just need to kind of formalize this. And then it was just like me and another gay guy and two lesbians on the ski team. And like oh, the four cool. of us were like, all right, we're going to start this. And we just so started having bad. events and started like having little meetings and stuff for people to kind of like, it was mostly just for people to know who we were like very transparently and publicly publicly and a lot of what happened happened obviously just like behind closed doors because so many people were so like nervous and scared and they just wanted to like talk things through and it ended up being great and now it happens like being 30 it happens all the time where it's like oh hey like do you have any sort of question about your sexuality come talk to me like that's just what's plastered on my forehead I guess so I get that a lot still because I feel like people just like are able to be vulnerable around me, and it. Dude, I, I feel <laughs> it. I feel, I feel it. I do, man. That's why you screwed the intro up three times. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think it was more because I've drunk like, I reckon about six or seven cups of green tea today, and mm, like, man, buzzing. She's got mad amounts of caffeine. <laughs> but like, it's true, dude. Like, I really noticed that about you. You're very approachable, and um. Mm-hmm you just have this innate way of making people feel comfortable. Like, I mean, it's, it's a quality that I'm probably a little bit envious of, especially yeah. as a teacher. Yeah. I mean, and, and in your time, um, do you, have you found yourself just automatically assuming like a counselor's role in the teaching setting? That's funny you say that. Um, Why? I went for dinner last night with a teacher, an intern we used to have when I first got here and she's the best, but she was, like super young when she was interning and now she's finally like a certified teacher. And she's like, I think I want to do like counseling. Cool. Um, even though she's only done one full year as like a proper like teacher on paper. Um, but she's been teaching for about four or five years now. Um, I'm like, Oh, maybe that's like, maybe that's what I need to do. You know, like maybe that's where like my strength is because I love teaching obviously. Like, yeah, I love working like I love working with kids of all ages. I like the content of science. I like what I teach. I personally love math, but it's like, I don't actually care about any of that to me. That's all so trivial, you know, like who cares? Like chemistry. I don't care. Like, obviously I'm going to use it as a platform to like connect with these kids and like try to teach them something, but it's like the important shit, all the other skills that come, you know, communication, accountability, respect, just, just all of that. Like to me, I value that so much more than like the periodic table, like boring, but I actually do like it too. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that you identified that those, um, I don't know if you call them life skills, like I guess they are life skills, but they are like, they are more important than the content. Let's, oh, let's face it. They're, 100%. The content is kind of like hard skills. And then we're talking about the soft skills of, yeah, being able to communicate and maybe even express your vulnerability and sure. talk about your emotions. I mean, that shit right. is hard. For like, sure. I, mean, I, str- I still struggle with it. Yeah. I'll probably struggle with it for the rest of my life, you know. Um, and um, you don't have any formal counseling training. Is that correct? That's correct. Interesting. Mm. Mm. Does it does that make you feel a bit nervous? Why? <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Does it make me feel nervous? <laughs> I think it's I, I think um I think when you become a teacher it's it's uh should be automatically accepted that that's part of the job. Right. Because it's a people job. You For are sure. 
Absolutely. But you're not just working with people. I, I feel that you're working with some of the most um, delicate people in, in the world. And it's such a delicate stage in their life and such yeah. special times in their life. And, Definitely. Um, and it can't be underestimated. Um, that's why I really do believe that every interaction that you have with a young person as a teacher should be as significant as possible. And I know yeah. I know it's hard, to, it's not sustainable all the time, but like you can work, keep working towards that. And I'll never forget the very first head teacher I had back in Australia. He said, he said, every single time you stand up in front of a group of students, they are taking some t- type of notes. They are looking you up and down. They're yep. listening to every single thing you say and you can have a profound I- impact on them. So, mm-hmm. um, and it really stuck with me, like, because it can be very easy to slip into, oh, it's just a job. Mundane. I'm just going to come in yeah, and just for tick, sure. some, tick some boxes and collect my paycheck. But um, uh, that's why I think to be a teacher is um, you have to be very brave. Mm. So you went to university in Canada yes. and then you did a master's in Australia. Is yeah. that correct? Grad at, dip ed. Grad dip ed at? Wollongong Uni, baby. Best university in the world. It really was. It's it's a good place, huh? Well. Did you like it? To tie in a lot of what we've just talked about. Like, that was the first place I ever went to as, like, just openly gay, just who I am. Yep. And the friends and just everything that I did from that point on is just distinctly, like, just a... It's different. It's a different me than before. And it's like... I was fine before, but there was definitely a new version of myself. Did you feel more free? Oh, for sure. Free to be me? Free to be me. No way. Yeah. In Wollongong. And that's the irony. It's like I'm realizing more and more that like everyone's like, what? But like we were all international students. We had no idea. I'm like a little prairie boy. I'm like, I can see the fucking ocean and a mountain in like one little twirl. I'm set. Like this is. Aesthetically, it's beautiful. The perfect place for me. And there's a free bus. Great, like, yes, please. And the university is fantastic and inclusive and yes. diverse, yes, for sure. Um, like I feel profoundly grateful to to have been able to go there, mm-hmm. you know. And um, yeah, it's it's an amazing place. There's no doubt about it. But I was actually talking to someone about this today. Um, me personally, I still just want to keep exploring. Um, I don't. It's always been in me to okay, I, I live in a great place and I have a really great situation back home, to be honest, but I just have always felt this desire. Like, I just want to see what's around the corner. Sure. Because I just feel like there's this whole world out there. Like outside of Bali or are you well, feeling but that? Being in Bali is one aspect of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but I mean, I do feel very satisfied in Bali, but still, while I'm here, I'm still the, like, I want to I wanna un- understand every nook and cranny of Bali. Sure. You know, and then maybe when that gets old, who knows where next? Back to Dapto. <laughs> I don't work in Dapto. I know, but... Dapto's awesome. I work in the other Bogan area. Albion Park. <laughs> you know the place, of yeah. Of course. That's so funny. So, yeah, then you did the dip ed in, in Wollongong, Australia. So, through that time, you were running, exercising. Like, when did the running stuff take That off? was, like, during that time, but I think... That was largely due to the fact that Wollongong was like a runner's dream come true as far as like, and I didn't even know it was happening. Kind of a similar theme of other things I was talking about. But like, I just didn't realize like what I was doing was like setting me up for like doing as well as I did. 
because it's like I ran on the beach once a week. I did a hill, like mountain run, like up um, Mount Kira and then yeah. back to the beach every Sunday. And then would do like these, like this little loop around the lighthouse kind of thing. And like I would do all these like runs and I was so just like militant on the, on doing that on a weekly basis. And then when it came down to like actually competing, I was like, every time I raced, I was winning. And then I was also like, Oh, I just shaved like three minutes off my PB. It was something that just came to you naturally. And and I've always been a runner, like ran in high school and college, but college, like even though my college was small, like Mm. I was never like, I was never that good. Like the guys that were running were like, you know, they're on an athletic course kind of professionally. So it wasn't like a for fun, but then when you start getting to like the longer distances, that's when like, I think more regular people can do better because a, there's like maybe not as many people, but it's harder to push yourself. So I don't think that people want to do that. And this is where I'm, this is where my next question is. Do you think it, it goes from being less physical to more mental? For sure. Okay. And so For sure. it's, it becomes more of a, a physical test than a, and that's sorry, a mental test than physical test. Right. Yeah. I love that aspect of it too. But then with the competition side of it, like to a lot of people just like, you know, you wouldn't want to just sit down and like get the boys together and have beers and watch a marathon. No. But that's how it feels like the the intensity of like any regular team sport that you would like get hyped up over. Yeah. That's how I feel inside. Like when I'm doing it, like it's so intense for me. Right. And, um, I loved it. So it's like competing more and then doing better. It was just like, I'm just, I just want to do this more and more and more. Yeah. And then I did tough mutter. So can you just explain to us what, Tough mudder is exactly. So it was just a mud obstacle race, basically, and it's, so it's a big mud pit. It's basic. It's supposed to be like, depending on where you are in the world, they do it differently. But the one in Sydney, to my benefit, like was not that muddy because it was just so hot, so it's hard to like actually get the proper mud. So there were obstacles that had a lot of mud in them, but it wasn't like running a half marathon in mud. Gotcha. So that one I like prepped so hard for because I'm like, I'm just going to like smash this out. Like I'm like, I was just obsessed with it. So I was watching all the tutorials. I like made gloves for myself and like went to Bunnings and like bought this spray and like cut the fingers. Like I just did everything these people on YouTube were telling me to do. So I'm like, and I was like thinking of like, oh, this is like um, the technique that I need to do to like do all these obstacles. Cause obviously it was gonna be like the first time I was doing them. And, um, yeah, when I got there, like, I will never forget, like it was freezing cold in the morning and the girl's like writing my number on my forehead and she like apologized. And I'm like, if you, if I would expect you to apologize for putting this Sharpie on my head, like, because it was cold, like the, the tip of the Sharpie, I guess was cold. And I was like, I'm in the wrong spot. And she's like, Oh, ha 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 ha. And then like everything happened, registration, I'm on the line, like in the first wave. And then we went off. And I was just like in the front and just, it was like me and two other guys and just never, they never passed me. So you make, the, it, you make it sound so easy. It was Pac. It was, it was very weird. It was like super surreal. Cause I beat the guy in second by like 13 minutes and he was like fully what they call like, I was a pure runner. Like I ran like that half marathon in like two minutes more than what my normal half marathon pace was. 
Whereas like he was like a full, like he would just looked a lot different than I did. He looked like way more of what they would have expected to win that kind of like more physical kind of race. But I was like, I'm sorry. I just have to win this one. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Like, no, it was so fun. It was assassin. so like, n- like, yeah, maybe that was why I just didn't expect it. And you beat him in the mind game. But to my knowledge, it's like a, um, a military style, yeah. um, obstacle course that, um, like how, f- what's the distance like? It's 21.1 kilometers. And like to, there was a lot of criticism on that race that, um, it was too easy, okay. but then I did one in London a year later and I got third. That was like one of the hardest in the world. So I was like, I will take third place because <laughs> there's like 15,000 people that do it. Gotcha. So yeah, it's not, it's definitely not easy, but that one was like highly criticized as being too dry. So people could just like run it and not actually have to like be challenged by the obstacles. But I was like, whatever, you guys are just pissed that you didn't win. So dude, dude, dude I've got another podcast first. Yes, I've got to. I've got to go piss. Yes, you, like usually I can. I can hold out. Do you want me to tell a story while well, you well, go to I the was, bathroom? This is because it's such a first. Uh, well, there's two options. There's Why not? Easy option. Okay, I can. I can press pause. Pause. That sounds boring. And then we can keep going. Or like I, I encourage you to tell a story. Or talk. I can or just tell. Keep, let's keep I going. I can move into my next running. Because um, he's a good one. Because there's a guy called Joe Rogan who yes. has a huge podcast, and he was interviewing this guy called Russell Brand. You probably yeah, heard yeah, him, yeah, yeah. legend. Right. And Russell Brand had to take a piss, like it was the funniest thing, and they just kept rolling with it. So. And did he pee? Like yeah, he went to the okay. bathroom and came back. All right, yeah, I'm going. Do it. Okay. Enjoy. Podcast first. Oh. <laughs> All right, this is Terrible Happy Talks, and this is Pac Dan talking. Um, <laughs> um, so I'm just going to continue with this um, running aspect, like being in Wollongong and having this like absolutely perfect like backdrop for racing and for, for training for competitions. Um, and then a few weeks later, I went into Sydney to do the Sydney Morning Herald half marathon, and that was another huge race. I was like all pumped up. I had, more f- I had friends doing it with me this time, whereas the Tough Mudder was by myself and um, it was the first race that I did where I was just like, I just felt strong the whole way through and I only get it. It only got better and better and better all the way through. And I finished and I was like, I smashed my PB. So I did sub 80. I think my, my previous PB after, before that was like 84 or 85 minutes so like in a in a race that's only 21.1 kilometers long to come like five minutes faster is like stupid it's absolutely stupid so it felt amazing to to be able to do that just sharing with the fans all about my my next race <laughs> and i'm back it's well received wow do you feel um, good? I do. I'm sorry about that. That's those bloody green teas, man. Sorry. I have no idea what you were just talking about, but um I was just talking about the Sydney Morning Herald race that I Yeah, well, so I didn't say how well I did. I got in the top one percent. That's I got two hundred I think I got two hundred and one and there was <clears> over sixteen thousand. Yeah. Like with that, like obviously there's thousands of people that are like walking it and like not taking it seriously. But there was a good that was my best race as far as like there were I would say at least two or 3000 people that were taking it very seriously. 
I know the race, and uh, I, it's very serious race. Yeah. It's it's very it's got a great reputation. But to say there's sixteen thousand people doesn't mean like you're at the Olympics and there's sixteen thousand people that are like equally. It was like the race was probably between the top five thousand, and but then the rest was like. It, but those races that and there's also one called the City to Surf from um, the center of Sydney to Bondi. Yep. It's fourteen kilometers. It, 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 okay, it's got your fun runners, but it also attracts the most elite runners in the country or so in the world sometimes. Yep. So, like, it's the real deal, dude. I can't remember how I did in that one. Not nearly as good, but I qualified to start in the top, in, like, the mm. first wave of that one, like, at the very, very start. Yeah. But that was a totally different beast because that's, like, oh, now I'm interested. I need to – I can't remember how well I did. I know I did fine, but it wasn't, like, as – yeah. good as these other ones but like do you like sort of um use running as to 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 form who you are as a person and your your identity um, so uh, the reason i say that is because like people say to me like like i'll often tell people oh yeah look i'm a surfer uh, right, you know, right right like dude like i'm like totally a surfer sure, yeah. dude <laughs> or, sk- or skateboarder just because they're right. things that i'm into but then i sometimes go oh i just said that i was like that like that's who i am like that's my that's how I identify myself. And it's funny how we identify ourselves with what we do, you know, and do, have you used it like that? or A hundred percent. But I think that's going from like the weird online dating world, Tinder type of thing uh, where it's like, you're yeah, constantly yeah, yeah, yeah. need to just like, who are you? Like, yeah. like it's so much easier to say like things that you okay. do so that people can just like get a little bit of a picture of what they're, in for rather than something that's way more authentic or real. Like, yes, I would, I would definitely identify as a runner, but now living in Bali, I wouldn't, I can't even identify myself as a runner cause I don't run anymore just because of the conditions here. And like, there's no competitions to me. There's just no point in, there's, there's no in doing it. And like I did it, like I won a race and I was like, great. Like kind of fucked my knee up because I didn't run on pavement forever. And then I ran 12 K and I killed the people and stuff. Like, I think it was like 10, 15, like it was just, where, where, was, this, where was this? This run? was North of Uba, like in the Hills, like, and it was just, it wasn't that competitive. Like there was probably five people that started it where I was like, Oh, like maybe we'll see each other on the race. And it was like, I saw no one I, like between 100 to 200 meters from the start. We were together. And then, I, I ran by myself the whole time. I was like, well, this is pointless. Yeah. And then I've done that a few times on Bali and it's like, it's not worth it. You know, it's yeah, not, yeah. A, I shouldn't be winning. I'm also like, I, I feel like I'm a good runner, but I'm not that good of a runner. Like I should, okay. I want to be running in races where I'm getting, we well, want to be pushed like 10th or 20th or big ones where I'm yeah. getting 200th or whatever. Cause yeah. that means that, you know, like the competition is there and that's what I love. But mm. so but no, I've definitely like used that as like to identify. Sense of identity. Yeah, for sure. So you were in Wollongong, had a great time. Yes. Um, then where'd you go from there? So you you went to you studied your dip ed at the Wollongong University. So you got yep. your teaching certificate. I'm assuming. Yep. So what was the next? What was the next step from there? So after that, we we as in like there's actually a few teachers that I teach with now that we all got our degree together. Um, Stayed in Wollongong and did casual teaching for a bit, which was wonderful. Like just seeing all the different types of schools, different types of kids. And then I got a six month contract to go to the Outback, Burke. Amazing. North, New South Wales. Um, 
And they're like, yeah, like, do you actually know where we are? It's like, I've got a car and Google Maps. Like, I know it's far, but just to clarify, cool. to clarify for those people that don't know, Burke is basically the epitome of Outback Australia. Okay, yeah. So it's, it's basically desert, very hot, very isolated. Yeah. Yeah. So Which that is was funny because it sounds like that's where you're from. Well, Canada. this is next level for sure. But like a lot of similarities, um, I didn't take them seriously at all when I was like, and everyone was saying that. And even like the, the my prof, um, in Wollongong, Wollongong was like, this is not where you need to be going. Like, I was like, why? Like, I think I, I can do it. And it was hectic. Like it was super, super hectic. Like the, the first night or the, yeah, the first night was scary. Cause I arrived at night and I think that was just like a little bit eerie for me to like arrive at night and do all these like, kind of like, like onboarding to things and like visiting the school at night. And like, just like, it was just very weird. And like to go from like driving the last like hundred kilometers, like kind of as the sun was setting and it was dark, it was just like, it was a very scary start. And I felt like scared and not in like a exciting way. Like I was like, oh, this is scary. Like, like, like I feel like, uh, did you ever like, see that Australian movie called Wolf Creek? No. Oh, okay. I won't talk about it. Please then. don't. It was basically, <laughs> it was like, it's a horror movie about a serial killer in the outback of Australia. Really? Well, it's real. It's like, Loose, there's a loosely based on true events. There's a darkness in the outback or the darkness. When you just get out of those rural towns that it's like, this it's like no other. And it's so scary. And like, that was, that was my first feeling. And then the first day was like, the school was like a little bit strange. Everything was a little bit strange. I'm like, fuck, I don't belong here. Then I had a kid tell me to fuck my mother when I introduced myself to him. I was like, all right, so we're going to play hardball here. Like I can do that if I need to, but like, I'm a nice person. I don't need to like be like packed down the, like, I don't know, the destroyer in the classroom. Like, but it was like, you know, you had to earn these kids respect and yeah. behavior management, like no other Dude. To, a, to a point where it's like behavior management. You need to keep everyone safe. Not just like, yeah. I want to deliver a perfect lesson. It's like, let's try not shed blood today yeah. or call the cops and then we're going to be sweet. Amazing. Dude, it's so amazing you did that. Because I, I know and I've heard the stories and um, in a lot of ways I wish I, I, I did it, you know. It was amazing. But um, yeah, I mean, I, if you can teach there, you, you can teach anywhere. There's no doubt about it. Right. Because that's as tough as it gets. I feel... Yeah, my time was cut short for sure. Like it was, I was there just for my contract. I had to go back to Canada. For How long a, was the contract? Just six months. Like they would have kept me for sure, but like I had a weird visa. I could only stay. Dude. And then I was pushing over this summer. I had to go back for a wedding and Canadians can't work. Like there was just all these weird factors, you know, against me. So I had to stop at six months and I couldn't come back um, okay. on that visa. So, so then that ended and then where'd you go from there? Then I went on in like a, almost a year long holiday, basically. Um, and I got a job in the UK teaching that I, I got from Australia okay. because they recruit quite heavily f- from yeah. Australia. Which part of the UK? Right in London. I lived in London for a while. Yeah. And we probably like, had two talk, very different me, experiences give a, there. Give me a suburb that you lived in. Wimbledon. Well, I lived in Tooting Broadway, which Tooting, is the yeah, same yes. area, south yeah. west, southwest-ish. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, so I didn't last a, long. What a contrast! 
Well, no. <laughs> well, no. like from where? From from Outback. From Outback Australia to inner city London. Inner city London, like behavior was crazy. Maybe less like actually dangerous, but probably just as malicious and like kids were just nasty mm-hmm. there. But then it was just, you know, packed down the behavior management specialists. Like it just, you needed to really own your classroom for the kids just to be, to be safe. And that yeah. was like such a weird thing. It's like, I didn't think that that would be such a big part of teaching. And like, it sounds weird to say, but it is very, you know, true. A lot of times you don't think that kids are not safe in the classroom, but in some aspects they like, or maybe aren't comfortable. Mm. So maybe these are extremes, but like kids really do need to feel safe and feel confident and feel comfortable. And then you can do whatever you want. Like, but until that point, like it's just going to be a struggle and it was a struggle in London, but to me it was just fun. It was like, it was cool to like try different techniques and like, you know, it was just almost a game for me. Cause again, I was there on like weird short contracts. I was teaching like, 13 different year seven classes okay. a week. Like wow. it was just like, Talk about you know, I was building resilience because I was the, the new teacher everywhere. Yeah. So, and I was always, I was like, um, what do they call it? I was hired out. I was, I was with an agency. So it was like, yeah. you know, I was kind of put in where they needed people the most. And yeah. it's like, I Gosh, wasn't getting beautiful grade 12 classrooms. I was getting like the feralest of the feral, <laughs> like grade seven and eight, which, I didn't mind at all. It was fun. They're putting you in the hard to staff area. Right. For sure. And I knew that. But I mean, what a broad range of experience and, and tools you're developing for handling different situations. Definitely. Um, because schools are so dynamic and now you've got more tools in the toolbox to deal with the, the variety of, of problems you have to face on yeah. a day-to-day basis. And for sure. This is where I personally have a problem with people working in school environments that don't have an education or teaching experience background because I'm sorry, until you are, you know, on the front line in the trenches doing it day in, day out, uh, you'll never really don't understand. understand. And like in Australia, yeah. like the best principles that I've taught under are the ones that didn't go straight into being a principal. They, sure. they really did an apprenticeship and they were teaching on the front line for years and years and years and not just understanding the kids and the classroom and the curriculum, but also the nature of the whole community, the inv- the variety of politics and um, for sure. and you know dealing with local businesses, um, you know, and and beyond that, it's it's vast. And knowing how to relate to their teachers, too. knowing how to relate, how to how to deal with staff, yeah. difficult staff. I mean, a lot of principals I've said that I've spoken to have said the biggest problems they have in schools is is um, dealing with conflict between s- staff members. Right. You know, they said that that's where their biggest challenges have been. It's not the kids, not necessarily the parents, although they probably pose problems too. But right. So that's what I mean. Like it, it really is to be the leader of a school. I, I feel that it's a 20 or 30 year apprenticeship. For and sure. then once you're in the job to do it well, it'll probably take everything out of you and you can only last in the job and do it well for five to 10 years, yeah. you know? So, yeah. and it takes a very special person to last longer. So anyway, I went off on a bit of a tangent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But then anyway, so then you, um, you were teaching in London, didn't last there very long. Ran out of money. Yeah. But well, I was why running. Why'd you run out of money? Because. You were getting like, paid? 
pardon me. No, I, I was like, obviously it was getting paid, but my expenses required me to work like, no, I need to work every day, working day minus three to cover just my expenses. Okay. That's expensive to live there. Super expensive. And I get an ear infection if I look at a dirty child. So it's like, I was, I always like would have to go to the doctor to like fix that or whatever. So there was one month where like I took maybe two days off and I was like, this is stupid. Like I'm literally earning or profiting one day of work this month. So it's like, I had no social life. I had, it was, it, it was weird to come from like being in Australia where that was just so much more a part of like teaching lifestyles, like having like, I lived with teachers and you know, we would all pick up like cheese and meat and like stuff on the way home and have little, like, you know, we'd sit in our dress clothes and like talk about our day and like, we would just eat. It was just like such a social, like fun culture. Whereas there I was like, I can't afford to have any fun. But the other side of that is I got to run. Basically you're just working to live, working to, I just ran. Like I ended up getting a coach that was like Olympian and we had this like running crew and it was like, I was the youngest one by like 10 years. Yeah. And cause, and it was awesome. Like uh, that's all I did. It was like three or four times a week. We would meet up, do a different style of run, like on the track or on the Hills or in the, in the parks or just on the street. And they would just run us until we were dead and then send us home. It amazing. was amazing. Do you still get ear infections easily? I currently have one. See, so just uh, out of curiosity, do you, <laughs> eat, do you eat dairy products? Um, like I consume dairy products, yeah, but like I do don't you drink know. milk daily? I have coffee. I with don't milk, like drink milk, milk. I don't eat cheese. Like cheese isn't a thing here, really. Like I don't. Did I wouldn't say co- like in excess. Like did, in my past lives, one hundred percent. But do you drink milky coffee? Like a lot, like a flat white or a latte? Yeah. Every day. Yeah. Interesting. Is that the reason? Dr. Shannon. Well, is that why you brought me on this (coughs) podcast? Yeah. I wanted to analyze your ear hole. Uh, (laughs) No, like I'm I'm just curious because, um, growing up I was a severe asthmatic. Mm. Severe. Because of dairy. Well, I'm not saying it's because, and like, I'm, I'm not saying it's because of dairy and it's different for everyone else. But when I was growing up, um, terrible asthma all through my childhood and teens and i remember early early 20s even and the doctor said to me he said you'll have asthma for the rest of your life you'll be sick as with asthma i'm sorry mate you've just you know you've resigned to a life of asthma and and your doctor was australian he was australian mate (laughs) anyway and i I always had a blocked nose sore throat yeah like always had mucus and that when that doctor said that to me fucking bogan he was i was like i'm gonna prove you wrong dickhead Mm, and like you I did. shook asthma and um, so by I just analyzed my diet and I just cut out dairy and processed foods and then obviously maintained ex- like exercise and right. gradually I, st- had to, I stopped using preventative medication and now it's probably been easily 15 years without any asthma or longer. Episodes. But then what's so funny, when I first got with my wife, she was the same. She was always like asthma, you know, using a puffer. Right. And I just said, listen, like... And she's always blocked in the nose and mucus. And I was like, just try cutting, cutting dairy. dairy out and just do it for a month and see what happens. And she did. And she got progressively better and better. 
now. She's completely asthma-free. She's completely... She very rarely gets sick or sore throat like she used to. And infections like respiratory-style infections. Right. Because an ear infection is... It's very much linked to your, to your airways and your respiratory system. So, mm. I don't know. I'm just saying. Okay. I'll think about it. Don't think too much. I don't. Okay. Don't worry good, about that. Good. I've noticed that about you. You, you, Instinctual you, part. you seem like you really live day by day, Daniel. I don't know if that's a compliment or not. It's a, it's a, <laughs> mad, it's a mad compliment. Because, like, that's all you've got, really. <laughs> yeah. Dude, like, I'm, I'm working towards it. Like, show me how you do it. Yeah. It's great. It's a great way to live. You Just keep focusing looking, on... You keep looking back at your dogs. Bull not jumping off this. Oh, cliff. okay. He's got a place. He's not. It's he, all caged gate, But he's, he has an agenda back there. So, listen, you went to um, went to London. Then from London, you arrived in. I came. I went back to, to, Canada to Canada for a little bit because my degree in Australia for Canadian teachers wasn't recognized in my province. It was like mostly for Canadian teachers in Ontario. Okay. And so I was like, "Fuck! I need to go back to college." So I did, and then I almost finished that. I had six months of college and then one year teaching like internship and then I could teach in Canada Gotcha. and I got the job here like literally a week and a half before I was done the college part here in Bali here in Bali and so they were only giving me six months and then college was saying okay well if you finish up the college portion you can come back within a year and do the internship and then I was like I'm just gonna call it and not finish it and not do anything so I took the risk and just decided to leave and I didn't finish like my final presentations or exams. I just left. I was like, I'm hopefully not going to be coming back anytime soon. And I made the right decision. Nice. Why, why was it the right decision in the end? Why are you saying that? Well, like I was at that point, they'd offered me the job at green school to cover the maternity paternity leave, but only for six months. It was only for six weeks for a block, but then they knew they couldn't just say, hey, come for six weeks. So they gave me six yeah, months. It's a pretty big life move. And but then because I was younger, like they just couldn't promise me anything. And we had like a weird head of school at that time. So he was like just kind of faffing around because he didn't want to commit to anything, which was fair for him because, yeah, he probably didn't want to. He felt like it was probably too high risk to like confirm that I'd get this like permanent job. Gotcha. So fair enough. But I was just like, there's no way that I'm going to go there and like do what I do and then not come, not return there. Yeah. So I was just like, I just have to do it, do it right. And I did. Dude, <laughs> dude and you're loving it. Loving it, so, Pac. So what's next? What's I need to get next? out of here. Why? No, I actually don't know what's next. Um, the goal is Australia. Like it always has been to go back to Australia. So. We're going to try that and see. Um, but we've got this whole year. When you to say we, out. you and the dogs? Me and my French bulldogs and my partner. Nice. Yes. Okay. So which part of Oz do you think you'll move there? Like, I'm not going to say Wollongong because that's not going to happen. Why but not, I'm going to go to Perth and then maybe we'll make our way to Wollongong. So it's baby steps. Yeah. I want to go to Wollongong. But he doesn't know. Well, he knows that. But yeah. You can move to Wollongong, but... um. You'll have to see me for a visa, okay? For sure. Because if you're not from Wollongong, mate. Yeah. I know they have a know. different visa system there. <laughs> I'm just kidding. 
Yeah, that's that's really nice that you're that you want to go back there and you're and you're attracted to it. So like um, because I like I mean I love it too. It's a, it's an amazing place. It's the best. Yeah. But now that I spent a lot of time in Perth, Perth does have it has everything that I love about Similar Australia. Appeal. And it's closer to here, which is also nice to like mm. think about not fully leaving this life. Gotcha. So yeah, we'll see. Fingers crossed, dude. It's awesome. Well. Man, it's been epic. Oh, yeah. It's been an hour and 35 minutes. It's a long time. Really? Okay. It's pretty good. It's a good amount of time. (laughs) I could talk. I can keep going, but um, uh, I'm just like really enjoying the conversation and it's been like really humbling just to hear you like openly discuss your childhood and and some of those life life stages you came through and i really like what you said about vulnerability like i'm going to take that away with me like because i think um it takes a lot of courage to make yourself vulnerable um it it does for me i can't speak for everyone obviously and um and it also i think vulnerability breeds compassion um and when you and i think that's a real strength of yours because like you were saying like people feel they want to open up to you and 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 i noticed that from the second i Second, I met you, and you were one of the first people that I met that just open arms. Hey, like you didn't look, you know, we had a bit of a connection from Wollongong, but you were like, just made me feel so at peace and and comfortable, you know, in a time when I was feeling very out of my comfort zone. And right. um, I guess a lot of fear and trepidation, you know, uh, bringing a young family over and working at this new place. So, right, I'll thank you for that. and Thank yeah, you. I really thanks for sharing. So, is there anything else you want to add, man? Anything else you want to say? No, I feel really good about all that. Cool. Thank you for having me on, dude. That's it. Well, all right, dude. High five. Thanks, uh. mate. It's been a pleasure. And um, yeah, you, you, we're done. You. <laughs> Hey, so before we kick off the podcast, I just want to talk about getting your morning kick in Belmont Coffee. Belmont is owned by skaters, barbers, traders, and musicians. They came together with the idea of creating a co-pilot that's next to you on the late night drives, early mornings on the job site, or a midday pick-me-up. Ethically sourced beans in a sustainable can and ready to go when you are. Use the code THT to score a discount at belmont.com. That's Belmont, B-E-L-L-M-O-T-T dot com.